Welcome to the Blue Security Podcast, a weekly podcast for information security defenders, where we bring you discussions on best practices, tools, and implementation for enterprise security. Now, here are your hosts for today's show, Andy Ja and Adam Brewer. Welcome to this week's episode of the Blue Security Podcast. I'm Andy, your host. I'm Adam, your co-host. Adam, this is season three, our third year, episode 52. So this marks the end of our third year, and that is just nuts to me. That's incredible. You know how many podcasts were started during the pandemic that maybe went a couple of episodes or maybe hung on for a little while, but to go through three years of shows that we've been doing it this long, that's really cool. And thanks for going on this journey with me. For those of you that don't know, listeners of the show, Andy preps the majority of the topics and the show notes each week. So he puts in the time to research and determine what we should talk about, and he incorporates feedback from from listeners and from me, as well as the flavor of the day on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it these days. So he spends a lot of time on that. And then he also spends a lot of time editing the audio each week, which if you've listened to the podcast in audio format, you know, it's really tightly edited, cuts out a lot of the ums and ahs and pauses and makes us sound smarter than we maybe actually are. And then I have the honor of doing the video. And so I edit the video and post it to YouTube, but still Andy has to come in and update the show notes and all that as well. So a labor of love from both of us, but Andy definitely does more of the work. So, you know, thanks for, again, including me in this project. It's been so fun. And I never expected that we would do three years without missing a week for three Mm -hmm. straight years. And listeners, that's hard as well, because obviously life happens. We've got different things to do, vacations, whatever. And so we have to be flexible about recording shows in different days, different times, recording two or three episodes to get ahead, especially like during the holidays. I feel like that first week of December, we basically record through the end of the year sometimes because the holidays are so tough for us to get together and do a show live. So a labor of love for you all. We have not made a dime from this show. I think we've spent a lot more on it than we've made back, but I think we have earned our investment back in the community we've built and in the knowledge we've been able to gather. By having to do a show, you learn a lot of things as well. And so I can certainly say I have learned a lot each week from the topics we discuss and from the listener feedback we get. And that's been really its own reward. And thank you to the listeners as well, because I have gotten incredible feedback from the listener community. And I want to thank them for sticking with us and also recommending the show to fellow InfoSec folks. So thank you very much. And we hope that we'll have many more years to come. I started the show with Adam thinking that we would run out of topics and there is no shortage of topics. So we'll get on with the news of that we're going to catch up on here. And as you can tell, security is an ongoing issue and pretty much always will be. Mm-hmm. So the first thing that I wanted to talk about is there was a zero day discovered by a Washington DC based civil society organization called Citizen Lab. And this was targeted towards Apple devices and it was actively being exploited. And it was a zero day, zero click vulnerability being used to deliver the NSO groups, Pegasus mercenary spyware. And what was most important about this was that you could compromise iPhones running the latest version of iOS 16.6 without any interaction 
from the victim. So essentially the victim would just get an iMessage and the exploit would execute. So very, very dangerous. Citizen Lab immediately disclosed the findings to Apple and then helped them with their investigation. Apple issued two CVEs related to the exploit chain. They are CVE 2023-41064 and CVE 2023-41061. Basically, everyone needs to update their devices as soon as possible. And anyone who might face additional risk because of who they are or what they're able to do. If you are the president of the United States, if you are a famous actor, if you have access to classified information, you know, all those people, you should probably enable something called lockdown mode. And we mentioned lockdown mode in one of our previous shows when we talked about it when it first came out, but essentially it's a very heavily lockdown mode of iOS that you can enable at will. You can take it in and out of lockdown mode whenever you want. A couple of things, I'm not gonna go through every single feature, but importantly to note, in this mode, messages, most message attachment types are blocked other than certain images, videos, and audios. So features such as links and link previews are unavailable. So this attack confirmed by Apple engineers would have been prevented if you were in lockdown mode. And I think lockdown mode really came around because of this type of attack where you'd get a picture or a link and it was a zero click, zero interaction exploit that can compromise the device. The other thing to know, especially for our enterprise folks, is in lockdown mode, configuration profiles can't be installed and the device cannot be enrolled in MDM or device supervision at all while it's in lockdown mode. However, there's a link to an article that I will put in the show notes. I researched this because I remember from our show previously that if you are already enrolled in MDM and you put it into lockdown mode, that still works and your management of that device from an enterprise corporate standpoint will still work. So if you are trying to wipe the device or do something, you know, I think the only thing that doesn't work in lockdown mode is pushing out applications, but you can still take some actions on the device if it was already enrolled in MDM and then you put it in lockdown mode. If you put it in lockdown mode, it won't be able to enroll in any MDM. So that's something to note if you're an enterprise customer. I thought it was really good that the article published by Citizen Lab was done on September 7th and then by the 8th, which was Friday, September 8th, I already saw updates for my iOS devices as well as my Mac OS devices. It was an extremely quick patch from Apple. But the other thing to note is having talked to a lot of enterprise customers, a lot of times device management teams and security teams are different. And so this is another illustration that if you are on a security team, you need to have some very tight communication and collaboration cadence between the two teams if they are not the same, which most likely they aren't, right? Like most people have a device management team, application deployment, patching. That's all usually like infrastructure type stuff. And then you have your security team, which doesn't really do that. But those policies need to be dictated by security. And you need to have, when something like this comes out, you need to go and update that compliance policy right away to make it so that, you know, your device would be out of compliance if it's not updated to this latest patch. The other thing to note is if you haven't already, I highly recommend that you get your users in this cycle of knowing when a patch comes out, like, oh, it's expected of them to update right away. We get a message on all of our enrolled devices that we're out of compliance. We need to update. It doesn't take away our access right away. There is a small grace period. And then if we don't update between that, our access 
access to company data is revoked. And that's something that really needs to be drilled into your corporate security culture that is expected to keep your devices up to date and not just look at it and be like, oh, I'll do it when I do it. Like you see it, if you have the time, you do it right away. If you don't do it right then, at the end of your workday then, right? When everything's done and you're ready to shut it down, update and reboot. This might be the first zero day that lockdown mode prevents, at least very public zero day that we've confirmed like lockdown mode prevents. And so that on its face is interesting because we did talk about it and we talked about for high value targets, that's something you should consider enabling. And now we have that real world example to go with it where confirmed lockdown mode would have prevented this from happening. Now, again, NSL group, they're not going away, unfortunately, and they're going to continue to look for these exploits and continue to not responsibly disclose them, which I'm very grumpy about. But everything else pretty much worked as intended. Apple has added this new feature. It does work for those high value targets. Apple patched very quickly. And then Andy, I like your call out for the enterprise. I managed mobile devices in the enterprise many years ago now. I joined Microsoft in 2017. So I'm a little bit out of the game. But at the time I did it, we had much more policies. I think we almost allowed an entire minus one OS generation. And this was back when Apple didn't continue to issue security patches for previous generations. I don't think they did this time around, which maybe means like iOS 15 was not impacted by it. But either way, I like your call out on using device compliance policies in your mobile device management platform like Intune to require you to be on the latest operating system within a very short period of time. As Andy said, Microsoft does this for our device devices, our personally owned devices that are enrolled in Intune. I have a Mac OS device and an iOS device enrolled. I will get notified if I haven't already by MSIT that I need to have these devices updated probably within the usually give you five days to a week or so to get it done. But if you don't, then your device becomes non-compliant, your email stops syncing, your calendar stops syncing, you can't get to internal websites. So it becomes very clear that you need to take some action and it'll walk you through that remediation process automatically. And if you have not yet bitten off this challenge, it's time to start wrapping your arms around it and to start to bite that off. And eventually what happens is you create that culture, that expectation that you will be constantly patching and updating your device as a requirement to maintain enterprise access. And by the way, sometimes that's going to happen before Apple even automatically pushes the update. So we talked about on a previous show that Apple has spoken to how when an update comes out, even though you have that automatic updates box enabled on your iOS device, they still offer that over time to more and more devices. It's that stage rollout kind of model. And I have had times where I, of course, have that enabled and I have not even been offered the update, but Microsoft has already cut me off from access to corporate resources because they had not installed an iOS update that I didn't know came out. So that said, that's an area of opportunity. I know a lot of mobile threat detection vendors, MTD vendors have some of that capability, like send a push notification to a user. Hey, there's an OS update available. You should go install it. I think Defender for Endpoint does that too. In fact, I'm pretty sure I've seen it, but I somehow missed it. So I think this is still an area of opportunity where maybe like if you have an enterprise device, it would be great if you could turn on some sort of setting with Apple 
world to be like, I want updates right away all the time. Like not only do I want automatic updates, I want to be in the first ring of automatic updates. Like that should be some sort of opt-in to make sure that if Apple pushes out an update, like let's say it's Wednesday, when I go to bed Wednesday night, my phone should automatically download it, installed and reboot that same day. I want that. Apple, go make that happen. Make that a thing I can opt into because I would gladly check that box and do that thing. Now that I've run into scenarios where my device is not automatically updated because of that staged rollout. So great callouts here, obviously very targeted, not something general folks need to concern themselves with, but you all should go install these updates right away. I believe they were on macOS, iOS, iPadOS, and watchOS were all impacted because those are all iMessage platforms. I do not believe there was a tvOS update pushed because tvOS does not connect to iMessage. Our next story is about the follow-up investigation from the Storm 0558 attack that involved acquired Microsoft consumer keys where they were used to forge access to OWA and Outlook.com. And I think it's really important to be transparent when a breach happens and talking through the results of that investigation is also important because it can help others in the industry learn and so that we can collectively get better benefit from one person's mistake and hopefully not happening somewhere else. And so, you know, we did talk about this story when it happened and MSRC, which is the Microsoft Security Research Center published the results of the major technical investigation for Storm 0558 key acquisition this week. And we'll, of course, have a link to the blog. Really good to look through. There was a blog on July 11th of this year that had details on the China-based threat actor Storm 0558, where they used that Microsoft consumer key. But as part of this technical investigation, they found that there was a consumer signing system crash in April of 20. 21, which resulted in a snapshot of the crash process or a crash dump. And these crash dumps, which normally should redact sensitive information, should not have had the signing key inside. But because of a race condition, which is a computer programming condition where two things are trying to have access to the same amount of data, there was a key that was present in the crash dump. So that issue was corrected. And then the key materials presence in the crash dump was also not detected by Microsoft's systems. This was also corrected. And then from there, the crash dump was moved from the isolation production network into Microsoft's debugging environment on the internet connected corporate network. This is consistent with standard debugging process. And then Microsoft's credential scanning methods did not detect the key in that crash dump. Again, that issue also has been corrected. So there were several things I think that went wrong in this whole process. And all of these as part of the technical investigation were corrected as part of Microsoft's remediation and getting better for the future. So what happened is once this key was in that debugging environment, which was connected to the corporate network, there was the China-based actor Storm 0558, and they were able to get the key from a compromised Microsoft engineer's corporate account who had access to that debugging environment. So somehow this corporate account was compromised. The threat actor was able to access the debugging environment and somehow found this key, which seems like a pretty sophisticated attack in my mind because it just so happens that there was this key here and they were able to find it. But that was essentially what happened. So I think a lot of things went wrong. Microsoft has corrected all of it. And the other thing that I saw was that there was wasn't any 
logs associated with this specific exfiltration from the threat actor. And that's due to log retention policies. I saw a lot of chatter on Twitter slash X about this because they were like, oh, Microsoft doesn't have enough money or doesn't have enough space to keep the logs. And, you know, if you think to how long most corporations keep logs, it's usually, I think at most I've ever seen for most orgs is around 13 months because it's, you know, you kind of do like a year plus an extra just to have a little bit of wiggle room. This was over two years ago. This was April of 2021. So I think getting rid of logs is a good thing. I mean, for most orgs, there is a cost to storing logs. There's also a security issue because logs can also have information in them. And if you keep them, logs can be compromised and stuff can happen. I also think it's a liability issue. It's not lost on me that like keeping logs can not only be a security issue, but <laughs> you can also have that discovered in court and it could be a liability issue so all in all log retention policies you know we talked about data retention last week with data security and getting rid of stuff is good i think in the same thing getting rid of logs is good and this being that far back doing a technical investigation just so happens that it's over two years ago so i don't see it being an issue that we don't have the logs and by we it's important to note that if you're a listener of the show and you are listening for the first time adam and i do work for microsoft we mentioned that we don't work in this particular area but you know as part of kind of being transparent i think is good to talk about it yeah, absolutely. That's one of the things I really like about working for Microsoft. I worked for Apple in the past. and I, I literally worked for Apple retail, like I, I worked at a mall store. And even that, like they were really picky about what you posted on social media, like you weren't actually allowed to post pictures of yourself wearing your Apple uniform, as an example. And that's neither here nor there. But one of the things I appreciate about working for Microsoft is people love that we do a podcast outside of work. I've never gotten any pushback from any manager. And you know, there's limits on what we can say sometimes. We may have internal information we can't share on the show, or there's circumstances where you don't want to add a whole bunch of additional like color commentary on things because you know there's ongoing legal issues or whatever. But for the most part, like Microsoft employees have a pretty wide latitude um, to do the right thing and to be able to speak to things in a responsible way. And so I appreciate that we have that ability to do that and be transparent. So like Andy said, we both work for Microsoft. There's a blog post from the Microsoft Security Research Center. You should go read that. That will be linked in the show notes. And Andy did a good summary of everything contained within it. And, you know, I think there's been a healthy criticism on some of the things that have gone on. And I think that's a great part of the InfoSec community. We need to have that dialogue on what to do better or ways we could do things differently. And that's really helpful. I will say the one thing I'll caution folks on just, and these are in general, so I'm not responding to anything specific in here, but oftentimes there's the like, well, certainly Microsoft has the money to do that. And the thing is, Microsoft does not <laughs> spend money freely, like just frivolously. Like everything in Microsoft has to have a return on investment, has to be justifiable in some sense. That doesn't mean we don't invest in things like security or R&D where there's you know long-term value in doing that or it's the right thing to do because we absolutely do a ton of that. If you look at our entire digital crimes unit, very little of that is a direct ROI from Microsoft, but it's the right thing to do with our resources sources and scale. So keep in mind that Microsoft does not just throw money away. Being kind of that elder statesman in the tech community, we 
have built a lot of really smart, like really good business people in our company. And we're very conscientious about how we spend. That said, we do have access to a ton of resources. And a lot of times I do tell customers, I do point out, like if we choose not to do something, oftentimes that's not from a lack of resources. That's from a conscientious decision was made to do it this way. And a lot of times when I bring up that conversation, it's around an architecture or a design decision that might be different than the way a lot of whatever community thinks or wants to operate. And so Andy, I think your point's spot on. Certainly Microsoft has the resources to keep logs longer if we chose to. There's a balancing act of what is the value? What is the risk? And it seems like we came out on some logging level that is less than 30 months, which would be required to still have log information on this particular exfil incident. And I think less than 30 months is a justifiable time frame. If you don't, that's a great conversation to have in general on the value of log retention versus disposing of logs and and the elimination of some of the risk associated. That's a great conversation to have. The other thing here I will say is in general, I have seen some Monday morning quarterbacking on some of the architectural design. And one thing I'm constantly reminded of working here, and again, this is broad observation and not specific feedback, is that the decision-making that goes into a hyperscale cloud service, especially one like an Azure Active Directory or an Exchange Online, is operating at a scale that pretty much no one outside of a large tech company like a Google or a Microsoft or maybe Apple has familiarity with. Like even in the identity space, and I believe these numbers have only grown farther apart, we used to have a number where we'd say Microsoft does more authentications in a day than Okta does in a month. So the delta between them was 30x in terms of the number of authentications handled. When you handle that much more, you make different architectural decisions. You make different design decisions on how to run your service. And that doesn't mean we are above reproach. That doesn't mean we're above conversation on how to do things better. But it does mean sometimes an architecture that might work in your enterprise or might work even for smaller tech companies doesn't scale when you're that big and you handle that many IO events per second or per millisecond or whatever the case may be. So I've seen some Monday morning quarterbacking here. I think that's valuable. I think we as a community should do that, but recognize as well that sometimes different decisions have to be made just by virtue of scale. One other thing I'll call out too, that if you're curious about, because Andy, you kind of made mention of this without explaining it. There was a lot of, and rightfully so, confusion over why a consumer identity signing key allowed access to enterprise mail accounts. And that also is explained in this blog. I won't try to summarize it in great detail other than to say there was a validation check that was assumed to be occurring that wasn't working correctly. And the downstream folks implementing that didn't implement a separate check because they assumed it was happening upstream, which I think there are lessons to be learned there from an AppSec perspective. You know, don't assume the input is sanitized downstream, do it yourself. I'm sure there's lessons learned from our engineering folks there. But also, again, that's another issue that was corrected. And I just want to point out, like whenever you see a failure of these systems, whether it's a security incident, whether it's a widespread outage, you have to have cascading failures for it to happen because so much fault tolerance is built into these systems today. So much defense in depth is implemented in these systems today that you have to have multiple failures over failures for this to happen. And so just like as Andy walked through this, I just want to highlight this one more time. Andy mentioned there was a system crash that created a snapshot, like a crash dump, and it's supposed to automatically redact sensitive information 
information when that happens. That didn't work. Okay, that's like number one. Number two, when that crash dump is written out, like in the production system, it is supposed to again have a scan that would redact it. That failed. Then when it was moved to the corporate internet connected network to be used in debugging circumstances, that's where code scanning should have again picked up secrets in the code and that failed and that's been corrected. So if you're keeping score at home, that's three separate failures, completely independent from one another that all failed sequentially. And so when you start to do the math on like, what does it take to have sequential rare failures to happen one over another over another? It's very rare and it happened and the threat actors were at the right place at the right time. And so again, I'm not trying to diminish the severity of this. I'm trying to contextualize this in the sense that if AWS goes down tomorrow, it's probably cascading failures. And that's important thing to keep in mind is all of these large tech companies, companies are building in that fault tolerance, that defense in depth, and it takes a very rare set of circumstances to get past them. And that's why we're continually learning and doing even better. So we can fix those and hopefully prevent the next one, but no system is 100% secure and no system has 100% uptime. So it continues to be a work in progress. You know, what did Lexus used to say? They were the relentless pursuit of perfection. I think that's what we're all chasing too. Yeah. Very good call out there on the cascading failures. And then of course, like the other failure that was the corporate security engineer who had a compromised account, right? So he did something wrong there Mm -hmm. and also had his account compromised. So Mm. I think if you read through the article, right? Like we just talked about Apple having a zero day, right? Mm -hmm. No system is perfect. And Microsoft tries to do a lot of things correct. They're literally in the beginning of this article. They talk about how like controls for the production environment require background checks, dedicated accounts, secure access workstations or saws multi-factor authentication using hardware tokens Mm -hmm. and then those environments they don't use email conferencing web research collaboration tools they restrict everything to just in time and just enough access policies i mean there's a lot that goes into it so you know this was a needle in a haystack it happened you know i think back to like cascading failures if we did a episode on the facebook outage a few years ago if you remember there was like this mass Mm -hmm. outage for facebook whatsapp and instagram and we talked about like the cascading failures of i think the the servers and the power controls of what happened physically behind the scenes and what the engineers had to do to like spin it back up right they couldn't even get physical access because everything was down like mm-hmm. they had to break in their own data centers essentially to get things going again it's it's wild stuff yeah okay so final two things i want to talk about are identity related and they're really good. So number one, we published a blog on conditional access dashboards and templates, which are now generally available. So the conditional access dashboard is really, really good. It's in the Entra Center or entra.microsoft.com when you sign in with your corporate account. This dashboard will give you a summary of your policies. It'll tell you any gaps in your coverage and also provide some valuable insights on sign-in activity within your tenant. There are some additional insight and reporting capabilities like C all unprotected sign-ins, which is under the user tile. It'll help you identify users that are signing in without protections of a conditional access policy. You can also look at all 
all non-compliant devices or see all unmanaged devices which are under the device tile and it'll help you identify any type of device compliance gaps. Another thing you can look at is top 10 most access apps without conditional access coverage under the coverage tab, which will go one step further and identify users without coverage for that app by clicking the number in the users without coverage column. So really, really good insights will help you scope your conditional access policies. And then the other thing is templates. We've touched on this before, but templates are now GA. I highly recommend you take a look at them and start using them. They're a predefined set of conditions and controls that provide a nice way to deploy new policies, which align with Microsoft's general recommendations when it comes to conditional access. And there's templates that are organized into five different scenarios, secure foundation, zero trust, remote work, protect administrators, and emerging threats. There's 16 predefined templates. A couple of examples for them are require phishing resistant multi-factor authentication for admins. There's another one that says require MFA for all users. There's another one for block legacy authentication, so on and so forth. And what's really nice is you can go into these templates and just click the button and it will create the policy for you. Now, if you've created a conditional access policy, you'll know that there are several things that you have to kind of go through. You have to define the operating system, the users, the conditions that you want, the access level, so on and so forth. And sometimes it can get a little bit complicated depending on what you want to do. And these are very nice because they're just one click deploy. And of course, once they're deployed, you can still go back and modify. You can make exceptions to that policy. It's not just a one and done. So it can is a great way to get you started on at least 16 of the most common recommended policies that Microsoft thinks that you should deploy. Love this. I covered conditional access for years in my previous role at Microsoft. And the actual building policies part sometimes flummoxed a lot of customers, especially a lot of security folks come from a network background. And conditional access policies are more or less the inverse of like how you create firewall rules, like routing rules for firewalls. And that flummoxed people as well. So being able to take a template, create a policy from it, and kind of see like how it works, I feel like that's a great teaching tool as well. In addition to it gets people thinking of things they should be doing. Like if you see a template for require phishing resistant multi-factor authentication for admins. Wow, that's mouthful. That gives you the idea of maybe I should be doing that. Maybe I should require phish resistant MFA for my admins and then you might go implement it. So obviously nothing but good stuff here. Super happy to see this. This brings more usability, more ideas, better ways to do things to people who use Entra ID, and that's a win. And one of the most common misconfigurations for M365 is gaps in conditional access. Mm -hmm. You can have conditional access for one app and not for another. And if an attacker is able to compromise your account, they can access information from the app that doesn't have any conditional access to it. So very, very important to take a look at your gaps and coverage, what apps are not being covered, because if there's a lot and you're looking at it and you're like, oh, Salesforce is not covered by MFA. Well, that's probably an issue, right? So you should scope your apps under the same conditional access policies for everything. Mm -hmm. The last thing is this documentation that was kind of floating around on LinkedIn and Twitter slash X. And I saw it, clicked on it. And I was like, wow, this is the first time I've ever seen it. And it would have been super helpful for me when I was doing administration at a company. And it is a delegate by task 
for Entra ID or Azure Active Directory as the legacy name. And it's great documentation for those who want to scope role permissions for least privileged access. And what this document is, is that it gives you a list of tasks along with the least privileged role to accomplish that task. Really, really great because how I used to do it was <laughs> I would assign the roles that I thought the person should need. And then when they said, hey, Andy, I can't do this thing that I used to be able to do. I'm like, okay, I guess I'll step you up to the next level that I think based on some other documentation, right? And what this does is like, they tell me like, hey, Andy, I can't delete a device anymore. I used to be able to do that. I can go and find that task, delete device on this list. And it tells me, oh, you need to have cloud device administrator or into an administrator assigned to that user in order to accomplish that task. Or for another example, consent to delegated permissions for enterprise apps. So when there's an application that requires those permissions, you know, that pop-up box that says, hey, I like the ability to read all users in your environment and read all their inboxes and, you know, some crazy permission for some new app that a user is trying to allow for OAuth. Well, if you want to restrict that and you want an admin to approve those delegated permissions, they need cloud application admin or application admin in order to accomplish that task. So really, really good for you to target the permissions for the least privileged access. And like I said, this was the first time I had ever seen it. And I really wish that I had this back then when I was scoping permissions. So hopefully you guys can look in the show notes, take a look at this, and it'll help you kind of scope down your admin roles. When we were doing the pre-show, Andy mentioned this and I said, I think I saw this as well. And so we had definitely both seen it making the rounds on LinkedIn. A lot of people are posting it with very effusive praise, like, holy smokes, I had not seen this before. This is amazing. This is one of the best resources I've seen in a while. And I will say me personally, I have always had customers when I've been at Microsoft ask me about roles and what's the best role to do this? What's the least privileged role to do that? And so now you have a fairly comprehensive set of documentation to walk you through that. I love a good bit of documentation when it really scratches an itch and this does exactly that. So if you use Entra ID at all, which if you're a Microsoft customer, you do at least somewhat, definitely something to go check out. And that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening and watching as always. Our contact information as well as the links that we talked about will be in the show notes. That is in the description of the show. So go in there, check it out, click on the links, read about all the things that we talked about. If you guys have any questions or topics you want us to talk about in the future, just email us. Thanks. We'll talk to you guys next week. Thank you for listening to the Blue Security Podcast. Please check out the show notes, catch up on episodes you may have missed, and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Find Andy on Twitter at AJawZero and Adam at AJ Brewer. See you at our next episode.